Listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is the beginning of the month. That means it is time to dig into searching the scriptures in the September 22 issue of the Lutheran Witness. Our guest today, the Reverend Roy Askins, managing editor of the Lutheran Witness. Pastor Askins, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Thank you. Good to be back to talk about our September issue. We're going to dig into Ephesians chapter 4 today. Is that right? That is correct. We'll do that in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. All right. Ephesians chapter 4 is what we're digging. Is there a particular theme as we're continuing to work through Ephesians today? There is. Before we get to the theme, however, I want to give a quick shout out about the September issue. This is The September issue is all about Luther's translation of the New Testament into German. We're celebrating 500 years of this. It was called the September Testament, and uh, supposedly he translated the entire New Testament in like 10 weeks Whoa. and finished it in September 1522. He had some help. It wasn't all a brand new translation. He had some German guidance. And I was stuff. starting to feel like a slacker. <laughs> well, he also didn't have TV or all the other things that distract us. I mean, he was totally dedicated. He was, of course, unmarried at the time so and hiding away in the Wartburg. But anyways, I would contend this is one of the most important things that Luther did, even more so than nailing 95 theses to the door and setting off the Reformation. This translation of the Word of God into the language of the people not only eventually resulted in the translation of the entire scriptures into German, but also spawned the work of William Tyndale, which was was culminated in the King James Version of the Bible and much, much, much more. So please pick up a copy of the September issue of Luther Witness. There's a lot of great stuff in there about the scriptures and Luther's translation there. So our topic for today is Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to pick up this language of walk and walking, what our walk looks like now as redeemed children of God. And and this kind of sets off really a whole long discussion, kind of closing out the book of Ephesians and talking about the Christian life as a result of, of our new life in Christ. So question number one. Sure. All right. Read Ephesians chapter four, verses 17 through 19. Quickly skim (laughs) Ephesians chapter two and four to five, noting where else walk appears. What does the walk of the pagan look like? What does St. Paul mean by walk? And no one can see my air quotes, but if they're following along in their September issue, they can see the quotes around the word walk. Yeah. Maybe they shouldn't have been there. Well, walk. Yeah, definitely walk. Mm. That's and an say, no, this, yeah, this is an editor question. They definitely belong in the second one too. So yeah, they're good. We we passed on that one. Okay. All right. Let's read. I love how you you ask question one, like you know, querulously. Should we do this one or not? <laughs> okay. All right. Let's read Ephesians chapter four, verses seventeen through eighteen. Seventeen to nineteen. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So originally I had in the questions written, skim 
all of Ephesians and find the uh, quickly skim all of Ephesians and find where else walk appears. Then I decided to be kind and give some hints as to where this this happens. So we have in Ephesians chapter two, verses two, and then verse 10, we have St. Paul talking about walking. And then we have it here in Ephesians four, verse 17, Ephesians four, verse one, and Ephesians five, two and five, 15. So let's talk about the first two and from Ephesians two, he's talking here in Ephesians two about walking Uh, In darkness, right? Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, he says, You are dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. Of course, a little bit of irony there, being dead and walking while you're dead, right? Mm -hmm. They walked in their sins. And then Ephesians chapter 2, this is contrasted then with the end of that section where he says that now they have been made alive in Christ Jesus. And so now as a consequence of this, they walk in good works, right? For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, right? And this starts to give you kind of a hint about what St. Paul means when he talks about walk. Obviously, it's not physical walk. It's a metaphor here for the Christian life. How do you then live the Christian life as a consequence of being made new in Jesus Christ, right? And then he contrasts this regularly throughout his book with the walk of the the pagans. We see this again, similar in Ephesians 4, verse 1, which he talked about last month, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then he concludes this section that we're in, Ephesians chapter 5, with walk in love, right? And and imitate our walk, he talks about also in Ephesians chapter 5. So that's what we're talking about here, walking the Christian life as walking, a metaphor for living our life as the children of God. But there's a couple of other things here that I want to kind of point out in this passage as well. He begins verse 17 by saying, now this I say and testify in the Lord. Uh, This is a way that St. Paul is indicating that what he's saying is very important. It's kind of like a formula. Like when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's making a universal general statement that's very important. It's like saying, hey, pay special attention to this. That's exactly what uh, St. Paul is saying here. And this is the first time uh, that he's done this. And then he's going to draw this contrast between the Gentile walk and the Christian walk. Now, the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. This word futility calls to mind idolatry. It calls to mind witchcraft and divination in the Old Testament. So they they walk in idolatry of their minds, and this idolatry results in a darkened mind, one that is not in the light but is in the dark. And then he also pulls out this word alienated. So here in verse 18, we have this combination of darkened mind and alienated from God, which then also brings us back to earlier passages in Ephesians where he talks about the people of God. This is in Ephesians 2 verse 19. He tells the Ephesians, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens, right? You've been brought into the light. You are now not a stranger and alien, but a citizen of the household of God. So it is this darkened understanding, this alienated understanding that the pagans have that caused them to walk in and he'll eventually point out sensuality, greedy to practice impurity, all of this due to their hardness of heart and the darkness of mind that they have. Are we ready for question two? I think so. All right. Read Ephesians 4, verse 20. St. Paul does not say, that is not the way you learned about Christ. Rather, he says, that is not the way you learned Christ. Why would he say it in this way? And what does such language convey? All right. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. This is a short little verse, but that is not the way you learned Christ! Exclamation point. Now, as an editor, I firmly believe all exclamation points should be removed <laughs> with the exception of interjections. They, they should have exclamation points. But his point here is well taken. That is not the way you learned Christ. And why does he say it this way? Here's the kind of the easy, simple answer. 
Jesus is not simply the content of a message, something you learn about as a Christian. And as we study the catechism and as we go to divine service on Sunday morning to hear the preaching of his word, as we go and study the word of God in our homes and with our pastors and fellow parishioners, we are not doing this to learn merely or only facts about Jesus. Of course, that is part of what we learn and it is part of why we're there, but we are actually learning Christ himself. He is the object of the preaching so that when your pastor is preaching to you and when he is teaching you God's word, he is not simply teaching you about Jesus. He is delivering to you Jesus himself in this very preaching and teaching. This is also something that parents should strive for when they're doing devotions in their home and they're teaching their children about the Word of God as, as you're sitting around, whether it's at the dinner table or the breakfast table or whether you're sitting in the, the living room ready to go to bed, send the kids to bed, and you're reading God's Word. We shouldn't simply teach them facts about the Scriptures, but do our best to convey this proclamation of who Jesus is and give that to them as well. Give Jesus himself to them. The way we kind of break this down as in theologically, and understand these terms theologically, or what we might call the fides qua and the fides quae. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but maybe not. The first one, the fides qua, is the faith that believes. This is the faith that believes Jesus Christ became man, suffered, and died for my sins, that I might become a child of God. It is the faith, the open hand, that receives the gifts of Jesus. The fides quae is the subject of that faith, the historical knowledge, right? Who Jesus is. It is the content of the faith. It is what we confess in the creed. Now, the Christian faith consists of both of these, not one or the other. Both belong together. Both the faith that trusts in Jesus and then the faith that in what that content, what who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And the point here that St. Paul is making in verse 20 is that they learned Christ both receiving him and the proclamation of his word and the content about who Jesus is and what he has done for them. Fascinating. Um, the gears are still processing on that concept. Sorry. <laughs> Took a minute. We're going to come back to it. So. Okay. All right. If we have time. I mean, we're already 15 minutes in. Question three. Read Ephesians chapter four, verses 20 through 21. Who is the center of all that St. Paul taught the Ephesians? How do the Ephesians learn Christ according to this passage? All right. So we're going to pick up again at verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught him as the truth is in Jesus. Okay, who is the center of all that St. Paul taught the Ephesians and how the Ephesians learn Christ? Well, of course, Christ is the center of all that that Paul teaches. I had a professor at seminary, Dr. David Scare, who would who would say all theology is Christology. And what he means by this is that God reveals himself chiefly to us through Christ and his atoning work. We might say, in some sense, that Jesus is the public face of the Trinity, right? All theology that we, all that we can know about God is given to us by Jesus Christ. This is what he says in, in John, in fact, no one knows the Father except, except him who has come from the Father and who reveals the Father, right? So, so Jesus is the one through whom we have knowledge of God and, and who redeems us and reconciles us back to God. So Jesus himself is the center of all that St. Paul taught the Ephesians. Now, according to this passage, then, how do the Ephesians learn Christ once again, according to this passage, not only learn about him, but actually learn and in this sense, receive him? Well, St. Paul gives us three things that they heard about him, that they were and they were taught in him. And what were they taught that the truth is in him? So you have this kind of this dual hearing and teaching. 
So hearing about him, this is in the sense of of hearing the word proclaimed. Faith comes by hearing, Paul will say in Romans chapter 10, and hearing through the word of Christ. This is where I often will encourage folks as they're in church on Sunday and the pastor's reading. Put down, you know, a lot of times we have those inserts with the the passages written on them. Close them up and just listen. There is something to this of just listening, not actually reading along. I think this is sometimes a crutch for us as Americans in our short attention spans. We're afraid we're not going to be able to pay attention throughout the entire reading. And that's pos- probably the case, actually, frankly. But this is what we should work on, right? We should try to listen and pay attention throughout the whole passage, but actually do it by listening, not reading along. Not that, of course, faith doesn't come by reading, but there is a sense in which the proclamation of the word, what the pastor is proclaiming and saying from the lectern there, hits our eardrums and and we hear it and, and receive it. Luther was fond of saying that the organ of faith was not the eyes, the organ of faith is the ears, right? Because that's how faith enters into the into the heart. So hearing him is is kind of key here. Secondly, this is the St. Paul says that not only did they hear him, but they were also taught by him. In in ESV, it translates, they were taught in him, but we could also translate it, they were taught by him. That is, the apostles and the early preachers saw that their preaching and teaching was the preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ. And what they pre- uh, preached and taught was the truth that is in him and him alone. We are searching the scriptures in the September issue of The Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins. We have more to study in God's Word in just a moment. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are searching the scriptures in the September Lutheran Witness with the Reverend Roy Askins, and we are on question number four. Is that right? That's correct. All right. Read Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 24. The Ephesians learned Christ from St. Paul. What did that result in? Who is the old self? Who is the new self? And what does it mean to be created after the likeness of God? So th- these are all really the same question. <laughs> so uh, I like to, to to put these in there to get people thinking. So let's read these verses here. So the uh, St. Paul says that they learned Christ, heard about him, were taught him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay. 
first off, a quick discussion of this passage and the way it's translated once again. And and this is also a note. I would also encourage you to pick up the September issue of The, the Witness, because in it I talk about the importance of pastors learning Greek and Hebrew, and this is part of the reason why. When we translate the Bible, we also tra- we always translate with a bias of some sort. And you see that in this passage, because it puts this language of putting off the old self, being renewed in the spirit of mind, put on the new self, as an imperative, as a command. This is something you are to do. But when you look at the Greek, it can also be, and, in, and for us as Lutherans, we would translate it actually more in a, in a past tense sense. So we would say, assuming that you have heard about him or taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, having put off your old self, which belongs to the more former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful, deceitful desires, and having been renewed in the spirit of your minds, and having put on the new self. Now, why would we do that? Well, because this is baptismal language. In baptism, your old self, your old sinful flesh, was crucified with Christ Jesus. It was put off of you. And you put on the new self, that is Jesus Christ. And that is how you are made in the likeness of God, because now your new self, Jesus Christ, lives and moves and acts in you, right? So this is in the sense that that these these things have happened already, and we continue to live in them. This verse 23, this renewal is this ongoing thing. Even though our sinful flesh has been put off, we continue to struggle with sin in our lives, so we continue to be renewed. But this new self has already been put on, has already been created in the likeness of Jesus Christ. So that's kind of the, the the answers there. The old man is the old sinful flesh. The new man is in Jesus. The is it Jesus Christ living in you, as Saint Paul talks in Romans chapter five about the new man who lives in us. And this all takes place in baptism, which then explains the first question. Right? They learn Christ by all, by not only hearing the teaching, but also receiving Him in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Question number five. Yeah. Read Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Why do Christians speak the truth to one another? What bond unites them in truth? All right. So, having been created in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness, St. Paul writes, Therefore, as a consequence of all these things, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So a couple of notes here before we get to the question. This idea of putting away falsehood has a couple of senses. One is the sense of the Eighth Commandment. Don't tell lies about, about your neighbor. Don't betray him, slander him, hurt his reputation, but defend him, speak well of him, and that sort of a thing. But it also includes false speaking. It's actually, it's the language of of false speaking or, or speaking incorrectly about God, right? That is to say, a sin against the first commandment, that not only do we put away falsehood from lying about our neighbor, but we put away those false teachings and things we believed in. For the Ephesians, this would have been worship of false gods, false beliefs about these gods, right? All of that has been put away now. And as a consequence of this, Christians now speak the truth to his neighbor, right? Not only do we speak truth to God as we do in the divine service, repeating back to us what he has said to us in the scriptures and in the word of God, but we also speak truth to one another, to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. And here we return to the metaphor that St. Paul uses so frequently about being united in Jesus Christ, being united to the head. Well, the fact of the matter is, if my left finger is united to my head, so is my right pinky toe, and therefore they are also united to one another, right? We are all members of one another by virtue of being united to Jesus Christ and the head. So we belong, we, we belong to one another, therefore we speak to one another the truth, and this unites us in this truth. Now, I do want to quickly touch on a couple of things I didn't have space for 
in the study, we didn't actually read verses 26 and 27 in here. And I want to include these because this is a commonly misinterpreted passage where it says, be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down in your anger. And uh, and in fact, th- this passage is often used as a proof text for righteous anger. Mm-hmm. And it's just not really what the passage says. I would encourage people, people to look up, ask their pastor, look up what Luther says on this. And he points out that this is really more a sense of tremble, stand in awe of God, right? And do not sin, right? Stand in awe and sin not is actually how Luther translates this passage from the Psalms. So that's something we do well to keep in mind. All right. I think we can go on to the next question. All right. Question six. Read Ephesians 4, verse 28. Why is the thief to do labor? Who is he to serve with this labor? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So here we're getting, you know, the kind of really beginning at verse 25. Yeah, St. Paul is now giving examples, kind of a list of examples of the Christian life and what the Christian walk now looks like. So since we've been created in the image of Jesus Christ, right? So we speak the truth. We don't let the sin go down in our anger. And now we're here talking about thieves and stealing. What's interesting about this is the thief is not to do work for his own good, right? A lot of times we think about this in the sense that, well, the thief, he's just stealing from everybody. He's not, you know, pulling his own, doing his own weight so that he can provide for himself. That's actually not what God says. The thief is to do work, is to do labor for his neighbor, right? For the, for those who are around him, right? And of course, you know, I like to talk about well, who's your neighbor. There's kind of the concentric rings, family, congregation, community, but that's the primary purpose of the, the thief doing his work, not for himself, but actually doing honest work for his, so that he can provide for his neighbor, provide for his neighbor's need. Question seven. I know we're going to give it a whirl. All right, here we go. Read Ephesians chapter four, verses 29 to 32. Much of this section relates to how we speak and what we say. How does the new self created after the likeness of God, verse 24, speak to others? What should our conversation be like even online? I put it after an M dash. I see that. Yeah, that was intentional to make you like of... strong emphasis. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes. So Ephesians 29, chapter four, verses 29 to 32. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you." couple of things. If we did this, I don't know that we'd have anything to say online, right? A bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. That describes the Social most. media is gone. <laughs> <laughs> and and we, we, can, we can jest about this a little bit, but I think there's also a reality here that uh, when we get behind our computer screens and we fall in love with the anonymity that they seem to bring, even though they really don't, right? We kind of lose our brains sometimes and think that we can say whatever we want to say online and that it has no effect on people. I've often said, I, I totally disbelieve this silly sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is the silliest thing ever because words can be incredibly painful, right? It's words written on a piece of
piece of paper that declare war and send soldiers into battle, right? It's words written on a piece of paper. It's words, I should say this, it's words proclaimed into your ear that also bring salvation in life, right? Words are no minor thing. And the, what we write and how we act and live online and in the context of our online lives can be very damaging and painful and hurtful to those around us. So this applies also not simply to the speech coming out of our mouths, but the speech that flies from our fingers, shall we say. So let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. This is this language of corruption here is the language of of vain things, empty, vain things, but also more than that, spoiled, rotten words. Think of, you know, your rotten squash that's got holes in it or something in your garden, right? It's rotten things. That's just horrible and awful. And then, and then rots the things around it, right? You have a rotten potato in your bag of potatoes. I don't know why suddenly I'm doing all these garden metaphors here. <laughs> and you've got a rotten potato and it, and it ruins the potatoes around it, right? It spreads and does more damage, right? So let none of this come out of your mouth, but only or that which is good for building up, right? So once again, this brings us back to the regular metaphor that St. Paul uses of building up in the body of Christ and being built as as members of the of the church, right? He talks about that in Ephesians chapter 3, 2 or 3. So don't corrupt, but rather build up. This passage about grieving the Holy Spirit, that could be a whole Bible study in itself, but it refers to, to Jesus and, and the sin against the Holy Spirit. I would encourage you to ask your pastor about that. And then also put all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor away from you, along with all malice. Now, I want to also point out here that this does not mean uh, that when we build up the body of Christ, we don't say things or we refuse to say things that need to be said. For instance, sometimes building up the body of church, the body of Christ means that I point out to my brother, what you're doing is actually harming you and your family. And I need to point this out to warn you of your sin so that you would turn from it and return to, to God. But it needs to be done with the goal and intention of bringing this person back to the household of God and back to faith. This is one of the things I think, once again, to get back to parents and children, we need to do a better job of. So many people struggle with hearing a word that warns them about their sin and think suddenly that this is judgmental or horrible and how dare you say that. But actually, as parents, we have an obligation to point out our children's sins and warn them of them and then call them back so that they might have put away falsehood and be renewed once again, continue this renewal in the image of Christ, this new self created in God's image. Speaking the truth in and love. That's exactly right. Anything else on this September issue of The Lutheran Witness? I don't think so. How do we get The Lutheran Witness? So you can order a copy by visiting cph.org slash witness or contact your district office if you're LCMS. Sometimes you can get a discount going to the district office. To learn more about this this issue and to read the article that I wrote, you can visit our website witness.lcms. Dot org. That's the gospel in technicolor, I think, is the name of the <laughs> It's a lot of fun. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Pastor Askins, for joining us this, this month to search the scriptures. Thank you. I had fun. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.